<clears throat> welcome to you members of the panel, and welcome to you in the audience. I'm Dick Cunningham, Director of Graduate Studies in the NYU Department of Journalism. I welcome you on behalf of our Acting Chairman, Professor Mitchell Stevens, and of our Chairman, Terry, Professor Terry Brooks, and I welcome you on behalf of one of the panel members, Mike Norman, who is an important and vigorous new voice in our department's faculty. We welcome you <coughs> to a journalism program established in 1811, the second oldest in the United States, and let there be no mistake, the oldest in this city. This panel, with its six voices singing about the images of war, exemplifies one of the thrusts of our program, particularly at the graduate level. That thrust is to help our students discover that over two centuries in the United States, our journalism has experimented with many voices and many ideologies, and more important, that it will continue to experiment in their half century. We help our students to discover journalism as a craft, an art, a language, a way of life with which they can discover images and sing in their own voices. Let there be, as there are on this panel, many voices singing of images, and let us require only three things, that the images be complicated, that the voices be clear, and the singers truthful. And now I will turn the platform over to Harvey Shapiro to introduce the panel members. Harvey sings with the voices of a journalist and a poet. He has been a staff member at Commentary and The New Yorker, and since 1957 of The New York Times. First as an editor of The Times Magazine, then from 1975 to 1983 as the editor of the book review section, and now back at the magazine again as deputy editor. Harvey has published seven books of poetry. The most recent is National Cold Storage Company, New and Selected Poems. Harvey, welcome. Thank you. Uh, listening to my CV, I was thinking of a song that I remember from my youth, uh, a blues song called Rosetta's Blues, which began, as I remember it, uh, I ain't got no future, but Lord, Lord, what a past. Uh, let me introduce the stars of this evening, uh, starting on my right. Um, Michael Norman, uh, who's associate professor at New York University in the Department of Journalism, as you've heard, who was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times, uh, whose book, These Good Men, Friendships Forged in War, uh, which came out, which is in pocketbook reprinted in 1991, one, uh, covers his service in the, in the uh, with the Marines in Vietnam, uh, 
in the 1967 and 68. Um, Phil Caputo is a novelist journalist, screenwriter. He's published three novels, Indian Country, Del Corso's Gallery, Horn of Africa. Uh, his book about Vietnam, A Rumor of War, was published by Henry Holt in 1977. And it covers his experiences in the Marine Corps in Vietnam in 1964 to 1967. He's been a reporter and foreign correspondent in Italy, the Middle East, Vietnam, and in Russia. She had the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism in 1973. He supervised the rewriting of a film adaptation of A Rumor of War, a four-hour CBS television <coughs> miniseries in 1980. Robert Stone is the author of four novels. He received the Faulkner Award for a first novel in 1967, A Hall of Mirrors. His second novel, Dog Soldiers, which dealt with the Vietnam War and the California drug culture, won the National Book Award in 1975. A Flag for Sunrise was published in 1981, Children of Light, of Light in 1986. He has a new novel, Outer Bridge Reach, which will be published by Tickner and Fields in 1992. His essays and short stories have appeared in such magazines as The New Yorker and Harper's. He lives in Florida and Connecticut, has taught creative writing at a number of schools, including Amherst, Princeton, Harvard. During the past few years, he has been a recipient of the Mildred and Harold Strauss Living, a grant made to writers through the American Academy and Institutes of Arts and Letters. Jane Dillon has written four novels, Don Juan in Village, Real Estate in Thrall, Some Do. Her short stories have appeared in a variety of publications from Christopher Street to Red Book to Pequod and the Paris Review. Um, her novel, Don Juan in the Village, was nominated for a Lambda Award in Fiction. She has, she's the only member of the panel who, during the uh, recent war in, uh, in the Gulf, has been in Kuwait and, uh, and Saudi Arabia and written about her experiences there for Rolling Stone and Mirabella, is currently doing a piece for Lears. Uh, Louis Simpson, I think I first met in the, 50s, when he was at Bob's Merrill uh, and uh, had published one book of poems, The Arab East, which contained some very lovely lyrics based on his experiences in World War II. It's a book I still have. It's probably worth a couple of bucks now. <laughs> He's gone on to uh, have a distinguished career, as you all know, as a poet. Um, in 1964, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. He's also had the Prix de Rome Guggenheim, Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship Awards. Uh, he has published, he's made a name for himself as a critic as well. 
uh, publishing three on the tower, a study of Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, William Carlos Williams, uh, a revolution in taste, a company of poets, and the character of the poet. He has recently published, uh, well, his most recent book is In the Room We Share, a collection of poems from Paragon House. His collected poems was published in the fall of 1988 by Paragon and his selected prose in 1989. Uh, Louis, like as I am, uh, is a veteran of, of the Second World War and uh, wrote a long poem called The Runner that I remember uh, based on his experiences, I think, in the Battle of the Bulge. I remember. Holland. Right. So we'll begin this uh, discussion. I'd like to say a few words. This is, I'd like to certainly uh, welcome you in the name of Penn, uh, the International Writers' Organization, and in the name of your local VFW. Uh, the, subject, the subject tonight is uh, literature and war, or if that sounds too high-flown, writing about war, uh, particularly the literature of our period. Naturally, the discussion is pegged to, as we say in journalism, the recent war. I'd like to begin with something about, something that goes back to the Second World War, which is my war, with some words of Simone Wiles, <coughs> This is a, from an essay that she, this is the opening of an essay she wrote in 1940 in France at the time of the fall of France. Uh, it was translated by Mary McCarthy and it appeared, I think, in 1945 in Dwight MacDonald's publication, Politics. It's about the Iliad, and she calls it the Iliad or the Poem of Force. The true hero, the true subject, the center of the Iliad is force, force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force before which man's flesh shrinks away. In this work, at all times, the human spirit is shown as modified by its relation with force, as swept away, blinded by the very force it imagined it could handle as deformed by the weight of the force it submits to. For those dreamers who considered that force, thanks to progress, would soon be a thing of the past, the Iliad could appear as a historical document. For others whose powers of recognition are more acute and who perceive force today as yesterday, at the very center of human history, the Iliad is the purest and the loveliest of mirrors. To define force, it is that X that turns anybody who is subjected to it into a thing. Exercised to the limit, it turns man into a thing in the most literal sense. It makes a corpse out of him. Somebody was here, and the next minute there is nobody here at all. This is a spectacle the Iliad never wearies of showing us. The horses rattled the empty chariots through the files of battle, longing for their noble drivers. But they on the ground lay, dearer to the vultures than to their wives. <coughs> Our 
Our earliest images, that is, in our culture, of war come from the Iliad. As a child, my earliest images of war came from books about World War I. Uh, the boy allies on the firing line, the boy allies under the North Sea, the boy allies in a submarine. I played at World War I using my father's helmet liner until I was old enough to be in World War II. I think that's a fair recapitulation of my early life. Early on, I knew I was born into a lethal century. And my experiences in aerial combat in World War II started me writing. I've asked the members of the panel to begin our discussion by reading something of their work about war and talking about it. So begin to the right. The story that I told was essentially about what happens when 10 men who have served together in combat try to renew the, the relationship that existed between them after 16 years. What happens when they try to get back together and when they encounter one another again? Uh, and in some cases, uh, some of us have remained fast friends. In some cases, we didn't. In one case, the case that I'm about to read, one of the men, a Navy corpsman, was deeply troubled when I found him. He was living in a modular home on a ridge in the hills of western Pennsylvania. He had gone from serving with the Marine Corps to a police department to running an infirmary in a maximum security prison and finally got to him. And um, I went out there with another one of my comrades to visit him to check on his condition. And we spent a few days with him, and I'll pick up the story as we leave uh, this particular place, called Lick Ridge. We left Lick Ridge, Lick Ridge by the back roads. Doc, that's the character, said it would be more scenic that way, and he was right. We said goodbye after breakfast when the hills were still wet with dew and a light mist was clinging to the bottom of the brown hollows. Belknap, the man that I had driven out with, was quiet at first, content to let the hills and empty fields roll by. Then, just outside the town of State College, he said he thought he had Doc all figured out. He's got two sides, Belknap said, the part that wants to be the corpsman and help people and the part that wanted to be a Marine and shoot people. It's just a matter of who you shoot and who you help. Compassion commingling with rage. In a way, it made sense. The tenderness was easy to understand. Men who have been scourged often have the softest touch. The anger, however, was not that simple. Psychologists who have studied us have written that our anger was political. They say that as combatants, we were angry at not being allowed to finish the fight, to win. Surely there was some of that. As Doc said the day before we left, I didn't get enough. I got hit, and I figure I owe somebody for that. And yet, men have come home angry from every war. Ours was not the first generation to know bitterness after a battle, to return to peace and yet feel so unsettled. Nor was it the politics of our particular war, maddening as that conduct was, that left my comrades churning. 
It was the incessant drumming of memory. To think of war was to remember the waste, the incalculable loss, and to be brought back to that, to face the weight of those numbers over and over again was to be left in a rage. Why would any society send its future to a slaughterhouse? Was it answering some bloodlust? Was it suffering some cyclic madness? No answer made sense. And the questions, as Belknap discovered, never stopped. Family and friends wondered why we were so angry. What are you crying about, they would ask. Why are you so ill-tempered and disaffected? Our fathers and grandfathers had gone off to war, done their duty, come home and got on with it. What made our generation so different? As it turns out, nothing. No difference at all. When old soldiers from good wars are dragged from behind the curtain of myth and sentiment and brought into the light, they too seem to smolder with choler and alienation. Every American war has produced disaffected soldiers. The Cincinnati after the Revolution, the Grand Army of the Republic after the Civil War, the American Legion after World War I. And, every, and after every American war, society has been bewildered by the behavior and looked upon these groups with suspicion. Newspapers across two centuries are filled with complaints about drunken, lawless, self-pitying lot of veterans who seem to be everywhere. What in heaven's name was bothering these men? In their letters and memoirs, veterans always provided the answer. Moral cicatrices, said one Civil War soldier. My mind, wrote a World War I Army sergeant, describing the death of a comrade, is a reel of a thousand such scenes. So is that of every lad who went over. A generation later, a Marine from the Pacific Theater of Combat wrote, it's hard to sleep without seeing men die all over again. My bayonet and shrapnel cuts are all healed up, but none of us will be completely cured for years. All this from doing what one psychologist called society's death work. War changes those who are sent to fight, changes them deeply and fundamentally. A group of doctors studying the effects of combat on a small group of World War II veterans well after the war wrote, quote, they have all changed under the guns. These particular combat veterans cannot blot out their burdensome, bloody memories. Of course, the man in the street says, forget it. The war was over 17 years ago, and therapists have said the same, forgetting that Freud taught us the unconscious is timeless. To most clinicians, these men were sick, and they were labeled as such. After World War I, they were said to have shell shock. After World War II, war neuroses. Finally, after our war, post-traumatic stress disorder. To be sure, the syndrome of memory has claimed its share of victims, especially in the dislocation of our age, where the once safe circles of family, friends, and neighbors seem so distant and few. But I do not think of my comrades as victims not even the doc, who clearly needed a professional hand to guide him back. We had been hammered all right, but no more and no worse than any other man from any other age who had ever faced the firestorm of battle. With this difference, the circumstances of our war, its maddening politics, its sad history, its mismanagement and bungled prosecution, exposed more dramatically than in any other war the lunatic motives that lead to organized butchery and the awful waste that results from it. In our era, it was easy to see that the sacrifice had been for nothing and that perhaps nothing was worth that sacrifice. So we were angry. Our anger was old, atavistic. We were angry as all civilized men who have ever been sent to make murder in the name of virtue were angry. 
and our anger was new too. We were angry for ourselves, for our wounded, for the dead we brought home in bags. Uh, I came of age in the 60s when <clears throat> the slogan was, the personal is political. Well, um, it turns out, um, at least it turned out to me, that the personal was in fact just personal. So I became interested in memoir, and uh, the selection that I've read is uh, from a work that's in large part memoir. Memoir as a vehicle to look at the world, as a vehicle from which to launch intensive reporting, as a platform into the past that might help understand the present. Memoir because its message, I think, when it's done well, is timeless, or it should be. Memoir because I think that writers are always looking for constants, and they always seem to turn up in that kind of writing. I've uh, just finished a book which will be published in October uh, entitled Means of Escape, which is primarily a work of nonfiction, so I suppose it would be appropriate at a gathering of journalists like this. Uh, it describes my experiences uh, as a foreign correspondent, and I might say mostly as a war correspondent, in various parts of the world uh, in the early 1970s to the mid-1970s. But in between each chapter of this book, I have written a sketch. Uh, and each sketch is just called a Disaster of War. There, uh, it's really not nonfiction so much as, as, as it is, uh, or they are rather, imaginative renderings of actual incidents that I either witnessed myself or heard about. And there are attempts to, uh, they are verbal images that, that attempt to capture in words the sort of effect that Goya did with his pen and pencil images of the Spanish Peninsular Campaign in the early 19th century and which he had entitled The Disasters of War. I'm going to read the first of the eight sketches that appear in the book uh, to you and um, may take slightly longer than uh, Michael's did, but uh, not much longer. White against green, the contrast was beautiful, thought David Victor Jones, resting on a hill above the rice paddy. The paddy was bright jade, the trees around it emerald, and the ducks were white. They look like egrets, he said to his friend Tom Lockhart. What's an egret? A shorebird. Those are ducks, D.V. That's what everyone called him, D.V. Sometimes they called him Davy Jones and asked what was in his locker at the bottom of the sea. I know they're ducks, he said. They just look like egrets. Egrets are white like that. I've never seen a pure white duck before, never seen so many of them in one place. A lot of things in this place nobody ever seen before. The ducks were in the tree line which formed an L around the paddy. There must have been 500 of them waddling and quacking. Now and then some rose a foot or two in the air, wings beating, then dropped suddenly as if they were tethered. Wonder what they're all doing in there, Jones wondered aloud. Lockhart shrugged. Maybe they're migrating and resting up. Wonder if the ducks in this country migrate the way they do back home. Lockhart rubbed a speck of rust in his rifle. 
Probably not, Jones said, answering his own question. Climate doesn't change enough. They're probably some farmer's ducks. You've seen them, Tom. They raise them like chickens. Yeah, Lockhart said, concentrating on the rust. They probably can't fly. That's why they're hopping up and down, like they're trying to fly but can't. They've probably been bred so as they can't fly, at least not far. You couldn't raise ducks if they could fly away any damn time they wanted to. Lockhart looked at the ducks, which were about 200 yards off, and said he could not see what Jones was talking about. Way some of them hop up, flapping their wings, then fall down. See, there's a couple of them doing that right now, like they're, like they're tied down. They're trying to fly, but it's been bred out of them. When the hell did you get to be this big expert on ducks? I'm not, just wondering. You're a weird one, DV. You've always been a little weird. Don't think I like that, Tom. It ain't an insult. You just see things funny. You look at them from weird angles. I still don't like it. Hey, forget it, okay? So now you've seen something nobody else ever seen. Ten zillion white ducks that can't fly. Let's leave it at that. The order to move out came down the column. Twenty-one men with Lockhart and Jones as tail end Charlie stood and started marching down a dike that ran straight as a road across the middle of the rice paddy. Jones glanced toward the ducks, pleased by the beauty of the contrast between their white wings and bodies and the deep, rich green of the trees. Did that make him weird? Hey, Lockhart said, looking at Jones over his shoulder. What are them farmers raise the ducks for? Dumb, thought Jones. He's so dumb he can't figure out what the ducks are raised for, but he calls me weird. To eat, what else? They bring them to the markets in these cages made out of twigs and sell them live. So if we shot a few, we could have us a duck dinner, right? No, Jones said, thinking, what a dummy. Roast duck. Duck stew. Duck alley orange. No way. One round out of these pieces would blow a duck to bits. Then maybe we could grab us a few. They can't fly, right? Lockhart paused, squinting toward the birds. Hey, you know what, D.V.? I think they are tied down. I think I just seen a rope or something on one of their legs. Jones stopped to look as several ducks leapt into the air, but he could not see anything tied to their legs. He wished he had the LT's binoculars. Why would a duck farmer tie his ducks down? Maybe they could fly, and maybe tethering them was a way to train them not to. Lockhart was 20 yards ahead of him, the rest of the platoon well ahead of Lockhart. Jones walked to the double to catch up. Lockhart stepped off the dike and started to slog across the paddy toward the trees. Pass the, world to ho pass the word to hold it up a sec, D.V. I'm going to snatch us some. You goddamn idiot, Lockhart, get back over here. Hey, they're sitting ducks, Lockhart said and laughed. Then he fell hard, face down. Jones heard the shot in the same instant and saw a muzzle flash. It came from the tree line in the middle of the ducks. In the next moment, bullets were spraying across the paddy. It looked like a hailstorm and three or four men on the dike ahead fell the way Lockhart had. The ducks were cracking, quacking like crazy. Jones dived behind the dike. All he could hear was gunfire, explosions, and quacking. He crawled toward the platoon, looked up once, and saw men running, falling as they ran. Four or five fell in a row, one right after the other, like, well, like ducks in a shooting gallery. Others, just a few, were lying behind the dike, firing at the ducks. Muzzle flashes blazed among the birds. Jones fired back. He saw feathers flying, white against green. He saw no men in the trees, only ducks. 
The platoon's firing grew sporadic. A lot of men were down. Jones emptied one magazine after another, but the incoming fire never slackened. Shooting ducks? It couldn't be, yet it was. He heard the clang of an empty magazine, raised his head slightly to load another, felt a blow to his skull, and then saw nothing at all. When he came to, blood was running down his face. His helmet was gone. No one was shooting at the ducks anymore, but the ducks had not ceased fire. The bullets snicked and cracked overhead, then stopped. Jones glimpsed through blood-blurred eyes, the ducks flying toward him, low over the waist-deep rice. For a moment he thought he saw men under them, running in a low crouch. He blinked, but couldn't clear the blood from his eyes. No, there weren't any men, just birds skimming over the rice chutes, white against green. Hundreds of ducks coming to finish off the wounded. He crawled toward the platoon, slithered under a pile of dead men, and lay still. Quack, 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 that was all he heard beneath the stacked corpses, his face half buried in the mud. Quacks and an occasional shot. The ducks were getting closer. Jones burrowed deeper, smelling sweat, patty slime, and the salty, sweet odor of blood. He could hardly breathe. He hardly dared breathe. Quack, quack, quack. Another shot. He felt cold, webbed feet crawl over his lower legs, which were sticking out from the pile of bodies. He felt the rough scrape of a bill. It was too late to move his legs now. If he did, the ducks would know he was still alive. The quacking was very loud now. Another shot very close. Oh, please, 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 God, don't let them kill me. Two more shots. One blasted through the body atop Jones's and struck him in the back. He felt the bullet slam into his flak jacket, but didn't know if it had gone through. The quacking grew fainter and the gunshot stopped. Jones lay in the mud-stinking darkness for a long time. It was so hard to breathe, he blacked out once or twice. He felt as if he were drowning, Davy Jones at the bottom of the sea. When he could not stand it any longer, he began to slither out from under, but the corpses pressed on him with their full, truly dead weight. He had to crawl out inch by inch, and each inch seemed to take five minutes. He thought he would go crazy, buried alive in a tomb of corpses. Another inch, another, he was getting weaker. He passed out, came to again, and gained another inch. Suddenly, the weight grew lighter. Someone was pulling the bodies off. Jones heard voices, American voices. Anybody alive? No, sir. His ankles were grabbed, and with a hard tug, he was pulled free. Got a live one, Skipper, someone shouted, turning him over. It's Jones. Get a, cor get a corpsman up. He forced his lids to open against the caked blood and saw three or four dim figures standing over him. Someone patted his cheeks. D.V., where are you hit? Where's that goddamn corpsman? Hey, D.V., say something, man. Hey, talk to me, Davy Jones. He opened his mouth, lips pulling against the dried blood around them. He tried to speak but couldn't. Come on, D.V., Corman's coming up now. Talk to me. He had to say something so they wouldn't think he was dead. He licked his lips and tried once more. Quack, he said. David Victor Jones, sole survivor of his, of his platoon, was hospitalized for wounds to his head and back. The bullet in his back lodged in his shoulder blade. It was very painful, and the one in his skull gave him migraines. He was given frequent doses of morphine, which made him feel wonderful, like he was a bird flying on the ceiling. He was addicted when he was discharged from the service four months later. His paper said he was discharged for psychiatric reasons. 
Early in his hospitalization, his commanding officer interviewed him to learn how the platoon had been wiped out. Jones answered that it, had, that it had been ambushed by a battalion of enemy ducks. And if the captain thought he was a weirdo who saw things funny, then all the captain had to do was look at, at the tree line. There he would find thousands of beautiful feathers, white as an egret's, and many dead ducks. Must have killed a hundred of them, sir, but there was just too many for us. The captain left. Jones knew he had not believed him, but he wasn't upset. After all, this was a country full of things no one had seen or heard of before. Jones then called for a corpsman, complaining that his back wound was causing him a great deal of pain. Could he have an extra shot of morphine? Actually, the pain was no more severe than usual. David Victor Jones just wanted to fly on the ceiling like a bird in a place where men were ambushed by killer ducks. It seemed the only sensible thing to do. I have uh, <clears throat> not a piece to read this evening. I, uh, I would have read from, uh, from Dog Soldiers, which I neglected to bring with me. Uh, in the sections I would have read from Dog Soldiers entail the adventures of a feckless correspondent who more in love with the bars of Saigon than the field of battle, who nevertheless feels and finds himself uh, on, on at least one occasion where he least wants to be. But uh, since I don't have that to read, uh, uh, let me uh, inflict on you uh, a, a number of ruminations about war and literature as they have occurred to me. I mean, we, we've, we are now, it seems, at the point of surviving the 20th century and we have a certain conversance with the literature of this century that we've lived through. Uh, it's amazing how, how much of a cult of sensibility this century has produced, how in love with the idea of perception it was, how in love with the idea of solutions it has been, and how much continues to elude it and one thing that, that occurs to me is that uh, Harvey referring to Simone Weil's uh, uh, references to, to the Iliad uh, lead us back to the beginnings of descriptions of war and the idea of war in human life. And for all us having come through this century in, in love with perception, we really have not, it seems, gotten any closer uh, than Homer. I mean, we can go back for the literature of war to Thucydides' descriptions of the Peloponnesian Wars or to Xenophon's description of the, of the uh, in the Anabasis of the, of the Greek mercenaries seeing the sea and crying out, Thalassa, Thalassa. Uh, the descriptions of the uh, Athenians on the beach trying to bury their dead during the plague, fighting with torches for places. We, and we cannot really get any closer, it seems, than we were able to get all, those, all that time ago for all that this condition is so important to us. 
for all that it seems to continue to be in some ways the definitive adult male experience and now the definitive adult experience. Uh, we don't seem to grow any closer to it. Uh, I was I was rereading after many years one of the most curious books about war that exists, which is Stephen Crane's *The Red Badge of Courage*, a book altogether inexplicable, uh, and yet one which somehow seems to define and to to condition the rendering of war in the in the in the, in the 20th century, which was really Crane's century, although he never quite lived to see it. Uh, he was a man who had not witnessed combat, who uh, got what he knew from memoirs written in the Century magazine that he, uh, he in a loft down here, that he shared with, uh, with, with someone who, who, in one way or another, was able to summon up the experience of war in such a way that it persuaded many people who came after him and had lived before him that his take on it, his sense of it, was more acute and, and, and viable than anything they'd ever read. Civil War veterans were constantly approaching Crane to ask him how he could have known what he knew. And in a strange way, I mean, we can, we, we, we can, only, we, we can only ponder where he, how he drew his, his, his sense of war. At the core of, of Red Badge of Courage is a philosophy that, that seems to have, have uh, been the prevailing one of his time, he, uh, we know it not so much from that book, although he refers to his idea of the great death. Uh, we don't know what he was writing about or what he thought he was writing about, how he could have got things so right. He seems to have come on this description, on this intensity, in, in, in a kind of intuitive philosophical way. We know that Crane believed in something called the red universe something very much the prevailing attitude of the time, because it's in Frank Norris, it's in, it's in all his contemporaries, the idea of life as something brutal, bloody, entailing a kind of priesthood of blood, something that has got to be mastered uh, at the cost of some kind of ritual endurance, uh, this was in the air around him, and strangely, it's not only in Crane, it's in Kate Chopin, in a way, uh, as much as it's in, uh, uh, if you read some of Kate Chopin's stories, uh, some, of, some, of the, some of her published stories, some of her unpublished stories, I mean, she was, in a way, as, as involved in this idea of conflict as Crane was. And Crane's disciple, Hemingway, who coming at such a, an extraordinary time in history, astride two traditions, uh, wrote what I'm going to read right now. Uh, I mean, one of the most famous things that anybody has ever written about war, which I think is really fraught with ironies. I mean, this is from, this is from A Farewell to Arms, and everybody's read this, everybody knows it. I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and the expression in vain. We had heard them sometimes standing in the rain almost out of earshot so that only the shouted words came through and had read them on proclamations that were slapped up by bill posters all over other proclamations. Now for a long time, and I had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards in Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to bury it. There were many words that you could not stand to hear. And finally, only the names of places had dignity. 
Certain numbers were the same way and certain dates, and these with the names of places were all you could say and have them mean anything. Which is the great document of disillusionment in war, except that we know now, uh, and uh, Kenneth Lind in his biography of Hemingway is very good at pointing this out, that uh, this is not a document uh, of Hemingway's disillusionment with war in the slightest. Uh, in 1929, the very essence of, of disillusion was with war was in the air in the same way that the Red Universe had been in the air in Crane's time. And we know that in Hemingway's case, he did not experience any d disillusionment with war. On the contrary, his stories of his own involvement in war progressed until he was telling people that he had been in the Italian equivalent of the Green Berets so that these moving words about disillusionment with war really attach more to literature than to life, just as Crane's reflections on war reflect something that he did not, in fact, ex experience. And we go on through literature to, to the great Document, uh, documenters of our, of, our, uh, of our century and its wars, Andre Malraux, uh, not too long ago, uh, well, a few years ago, a young man wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about going down the Mekong River, and it was subsequently revealed that he had never gone down the Mekong River, that he had plagiarized what he had written from Malraux, and we now know that Malraux probably never went down the Mekong either <laughs> in quite that way. There's an old expression from battle about the fog of war. Uh, it was revived during the during the Persian uh, during the Persian Gulf engagement. Uh, it seems to persist. It seems as though it may persist forever. There was an expression during the Vietnam War that people would say something that people would say one one person to another, looking out of the corner of their eye, seeing something something happening. People one one person would say to another, "There it is," they would say, and you always had to wonder. What was it? What was it that we saw or were trying to see? And we still don't know. Um, I was in uh, Saudi Arabia from um, January 10th until March uh, 12th. I, I was sent over by Mirabella and um, originally just for three days, and I stayed. Um, and later on, I got onto um, a pool and got into Kuwait. But when I wrote this story, uh, it was it was January 29th. So um, you have to realize I'm writing something that was in the middle of something. Um, Mirabella slightly censored some stuff, so I'm going to try to read uh, the unexpurgated version. Um, I'm in a slightly different circumstance than other people here who are reading from books, because when you're writing journalism, uh, it's going to be read immediately. And yet, I was a different journalist than most of the people that were there, because they were like filing stories every day. There were very few magazine reporters there, maybe three or four. Um, and I'd never written about war. I'd never done any uh, foreign reporting. And I'd never written about the military. And I was very conscious that I knew nothing. And if I hadn't been, all the other reporters there made sure that I became conscious that I knew nothing. And, um, but I don't think I knew all that much either. But um, I wanted to be honest when I wrote about not knowing anything. And uh, so 
And the only way I could really write what I know was not write what the military were handing us, but just sort of to write about how I went about trying to find out what I knew, which was, you know, just the way I, I would do other stories. So the, what I really was writing about was not, quote, the truth, but me trying to find out about the truth. Um, and, so, and I wanted to dramatize the possibility, you know, how, how you go about searching for truth in a world that, that you know, doesn't want you to know anything and, and sort of against you. Uh, finding out stuff, and and uh, since I'm a novelist, I tried to do this by fictional devices. I tried to be as experiential as possible. I tried to write it in the immediate moment rather than sort of retrospectively. Um, some journalism is written with your own voice, and I tried to do that. Uh, I tried to keep it the feel of how it was there, which was um, kind of hot and intense, and not really knowing stuff. There were a lot of rumors, and what the army gave out really also was rumors. So, and I tried to incorporate those rumors in there since I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, okay. This is like from the, from the end of the piece. Um, the phony war is rumors. Satan's got his bad points, but you can't say he's dull. In fact, he's turning out to be downright creative. They're now saying the oil slick is six or 12 or 25 times as bad as the Exxon Valdez spill and will fuck up the great marine amphibious attack. No, it's proof he's moving out. No, he's trying to sucker us in so he can shell the front lines with gas and that fuel air explosive made by Honeywell. Satan's Air Force is pathetic. He's assassinated his generals and the planes won't fly. Satan's Air Force is brilliant. He's got them hiding until some moonless night when they'll gas Israel. It's impossible to deliver gas by missiles. He's dead anyway and wants the world to end up with him. He doesn't have nukes, but something just as bad. When he gasses the Israelis, they'll nuke him and that will be the end of the coalition. Jordan and Syria will join his saying. It doesn't matter. Jordan doesn't have an army and Syria's our friend. Bullshit, we have no friends. The Germans are giving the Israelis patriots. What does it mean to have an enemy? What Hussein's really doing is waiting for the full moon to send his bombers over to Israel with chemicals. He can't do that because we destroyed his runways. He can do that because he's still got highways. It's impossible to know because all you ever get is a piece of the elephant. CNN tries to capture the elephant, but the real elephant is in the White House, and his name is Read My Lips. Nobody knows what the war is about. The soldiers say we've got to get rid of Satan and free Kuwait. The officers say it's about oil. George Bush says it's about the New World Order. But if it's Satan we're after, what about the one we created in Cambodia? And if it's freedom, what about Lithuania? And if it's oil, wouldn't it be cheaper to pay whatever it costs to buy the stuff from Texas and Mexico, which, after all, would help the banks in the savings and loan crisis? And if we're after the New World Order, then why are we doing stuff that will make us hate it even more than we are now? Polite foreign journalists say we're here because of America's desire to push its way around in the world. Less polite foreign journalists say it has to do with the size of George Bush's dick. They will come one night, the bombers will come with gas, and that night, someone has a feeling, is tonight. The guy next door sets up his camcorder. It gets to the point we simply will not, cannot, turn on the TV. A week here is like six months, and after that, the progression is geometrical. When you try to sleep, a million things go through your mind. The army corporal who told you about sleeping with her husband behind a scene The Coast Guard's woman who told you about her fear of vomiting in a gas mask 
and the choice she then had of choking on your own vomit um, or gagging on gas, the soldier who worried about getting diarrhea in her jumpsuit, the soldier who said, I'm proud of walking through feces and having a cockroach jump in my shorts um, when I go to the latrine, but was worried that her husband, and maybe she, even she herself, didn't like the person she had become. Uh, the journalist who left her Tampax in her body for 24 hours at the front because there wasn't any privacy. A jib officer's retort to the question, what if captured women soldiers get raped, with the question, what if captured men soldiers get raped? The adrenaline of pool reporters going off to war for the first time. The resignation of pool reporters going off to war for the second time. The wind is howling down a cold front from the north and you are spooked. Your room is a mess and you don't care. You forget to label your tapes. Something is going dreadfully wrong, but you don't know if it's in you or outside. Already the great revision has begun. We were going to win this war in a few weeks without, according to a statement by Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Hochberg, so much as a loss of a plane. And all of a sudden, it's going to be six months or more. And according to the deeper than deep background estimate from a military man, it's going to be like Vietnam, but faster. You remember Vietnam, don't you? It's the war that was lost by the press. There's one divinely wonderful thing about this war, and that is that whatever happens, the military have done it all by themselves. The Kuwaiti women you have met in the shelter ask you, why don't you kill Satan? Before the war, you tell us you know where he is, you know everything about him. I tell them, we lie. They ask, why can't we just drop a bomb and kill him? It's a long story having to do with the British building bunkers and the Russians providing the Iraqis with scuds and the Germans tailoring them to go long distance and the crazy way we think that just because we're big and strong we can get anybody to do what we like. Maybe it's an even longer and sadder story having to do with faith and belief and forgetfulness and a longing for America to be the way it was in World War II or rather the idea we have of World War II from the movies. Is this the beginning of the end of the world, or will it all be over if we kill Saddam Hussein next week? Lying sleepless, you can't believe you ever like to travel. You'd give everything to lie in your own bed watching Fred Astaire twirl Ginger Rogers around the floor. You'd give anything to gossip for hours on the phone to your friends and read something dumb and reassuring like the New York Post. You finally understand that when the soldiers say they'd like to do the job they were sent here to do, it's not patriotism or love of war, but the simple recognition that the sooner they do whatever the hell they've been ordered to do, the sooner the ones who survive, which doesn't include everybody, but of course includes them, can go back home to the ordinary lives that suddenly look so good. The rest of us who are here for thrills and glory and money, and oh yes, to cover the story, may believe in the story, but we also know that for some reason we are all irredeemably cursed. Yes, we help create Satan, and no, we are not God. So tell me, where do we go from here? This is the second time I was asked to be on a panel about the war. The first time I refused because I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it because of, it was too serious for me, too personal. And I accept it this time, I guess, because I'm sort of coming out of that. Uh, I think for f 1946 was when I got out of the Army. And for every night of my life from that until about three years ago, I dreamed about the war. I'm not exaggerating. And I, a, a journalist came from Czechoslovakia a couple years ago to interview me. 
And he, I told him this and said that I thought there was something really wrong with me. And he said, no, he'd been interviewing Russian soldiers and they told him exactly the same thing. I didn't have a nice war. I had a rifleman's, rifleman's war from Normandy right to the end of the World War II. And I don't share some of the opinions of the cliches that are so pleasing to people. Yes, war is terrible. Of course it's terrible. It was terrible in the Civil War. If you, if you were at Antietam, can you imagine what that was like? But why do men go to war and women go to war? Is it because they're complete fools, as some people think? I don't think so. I knew a lot of common men in World War II, and I never knew a fool among them, not the ones at the front, anyhow. Um, I think that there are worse things in war. I'll, I'll read you a poem. Ich wünscht, ich war ein Vöglein, sang Heinrich. I would fly across the sea, so sadly, it made his mother cry. At night he played his zither, by day worked in the mine. His friend was Hans, together the boys walked by the Rhine. Each day we're growing older, Hans said, this is no life. I wish I were a soldier, and snapped his pocket knife. War came and Hans was taken, but Heinrich did not fight. Ich wünscht ich war ein Vöglein, sang Heinrich every night. Dear Heinrich, said the letter, I hope this finds you fine. The war could not be better. It's women's song and wine. A letter came for Heinrich, the same that he'd sent east to Hans, his own handwriting returned and marked deceased. You'll never be a beauty, the doctor said, you scamp. We'll give you special duty, a concentration camp. And now the truck was nearing a place. They passed a house. A radio was blaring the Wiener Blut of Strauss. The banks were bright with flowers. The birds sang in the wood. There was a fence with towers on which armed sentries stood. They stopped. The men dismounted. Heinrich got down at last. That chimney, said the sergeant, that's where the Jews are gassed. Each day he sorted clothing, skirt, trousers, boot, and shoe, till he was filled with loathing for every size of Jew. Come in, what is it, private? Please, sir, that vacancy, I wonder, could I have it? Your papers, let me see. You're steady and you're sober, but have you learned to kill? Said Heinrich, no, Herr Oberleutnant, but I will. The Reich can use your spirit, report to Unit 4. Here is an armband, wear it. Dismissed, don't slam the door. Ich wünscht ich fahre ein Vöglein, sang Heinrich. I would fly. They knew that when they heard him, the next day they would die. They stood in silence, praying. At midnight when they heard the zither softly playing, the singing of the bird. He stared into the fire. He sipped a glass of wine. It wunched his voice rose higher. It were an line. A dog howled in its kennel. He thought of Hans and cried. The stars looked down from heaven. That day the children died. The Russian tanks are coming. The wind bore from the east a cannonade, a drumming of small arms that increased. Heinrich went to headquarters. He found the colonel dead 
with pictures of his daughters, a pistol by his head. He thought his courage sinking, there's always the SS. He found the major drinking in a woman's party dress. The prisoners were shaking their barracks. Heinrich heard a sound of timber breaking, a shout. Where is the bird? The Russian was completing a seven-page report. He wrote, we still are beating the woods. Then he stopped short. A little bird was flitting outside from tree to tree. He turned where he was sitting and watched it thoughtfully. He pulled himself together and wrote, we've left no stone unturned, but not a feather. It seems the bird has flown. Description, half a dozen group snapshots, badly blurred. And which is Emma's cousin, God knows, and which the bird. He could be in the western or in the eastern zone. I'd welcome a suggestion, if anything is known. Ich wünsch dich für ein Vöglein, sings Heinrich. I would fly across the sea so sadly it makes his children cry. So I do think there were things of getting killed in a war or wounded badly even. I think being a slave is worse. All right, we've heard from very different voices about very different wars. Uh, we'll open this for discussion now, and we don't have to go by the, by the numbers. Anybody wants to begin? Louis, I'd, I'd like to know if, since the experience of war, we, we were in very different, we saw war very differently. I undoubtedly had an easier war in the Air Force than you did in the infantry. Uh, but if it left that mark on you, how did it affect the way you see your vision? I mean, the way you see the world. That kind of experience must have changed the way you write. Everything that you write must reflect it in some way. Yeah, I always thought that I was born again in World War II. I mean, literally, I got out of a foxhole and, and I no, don't, no longer had a father and mother. I was my own. It was, it was I who had survived that last five seconds. Um, it's given me a, a rather, it made it very difficult for me to be a writer in some ways and to, earn, to work in a university, which is what I do, because I'm surrounded by people, especially in the last 10, 20 years, theorists, <laughs> who don't believe in reality. Uh, they, don't believe <laughs> they don't believe that bullets are real unless you have a name for it. You can't, it's not, it doesn't exist. Um, I've, been, I've been told that. I was on a panel with Denise Levitoff and uh, Helen Bendler and a couple other people, and the, the theorists told us that unless there was a language for a thing, it didn't really exist. Well, after World War II, I found it very difficult to respect my colleagues, people who, who lived entirely in language. I, 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 it took, well, it's a very common experience. It took, takes years for you to stop walking down the street and saying to yourself, well, is there a machine gun behind that corner? You're, you're really a bit crazy. You really are out of your mind, really a bit, for a long time. Well, there was always a, a, a quotation that I pondered for a long time. I've never been able to, like a great many things to do with war, I've never been able to come to much of a conclusion about it. But I, 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 I offer it because it's in my mind. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes talked to the graduating class of Harvard, the class of 96. Holmes had been with the Massachusetts Regiment during the Civil War, and he'd seen quite a lot of hard fighting. And he said, war while you are at it is boring and horrible. It is only years later that you see that its message is glorious. Bob, you spoke about Hemingway. I mean, it's true that that war changes you when you're in it, but it's also true that you come to it having read books. I mean, we all came to it, Louis, you and I came to it, having read Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, and what we saw was partly out of his head, don't you think, or no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think other people's wars are always more incredible to you than your own. I remember in, in, in World War II being in a trench, stumbling into a trench outside Reims of the First World War and having this terribly eerie feeling. That to me was a much more real war than the one I was in. I remember the first time I, you know, I went to a bar and I guess when I came from North Africa to Italy, and the first time I'd been in town and I went and I, I guess I ordered Fudge Strager or some drink I didn't know anything about but got very drunk on it because I'd read about it <laughs> in Farewell to Arms. Uh, it's just that silly kind of, but caught in, Heming caught in Hemingway's War. Everybody, so many people have been in Hemingway's War in the 20th century. I mean, it's numberless people have been in Ernest Hemingway's War. You wonder if it, it, everyone perhaps but Ernest Hemingway. Um, I found the war uh, much more, uh, I'd read a lot of war books when I was young, but this, for me, it was much more like TV and the movies. And the problem was feeling that the experience was real. Um, like on the road to Basra when all those uh, trucks and um, cars had been bombed. Um, one got a very kind of aesthetic feel about it, like I was looking inside a car which had been totally burnt and there was just um, iron there and then the sun was glinting through and it, it was just, they were just like movie shots. It was very hard to feel anything. Um, and so much of the war was mediated by television and we were over there and we were really finding out more over the TV. It was very hard and you know my primary image of the war is, is uh, the, the people at the Joint Information Bureau watching CNN to find out what was happening and they were supposed to be the press people and it was a very reflexive war um, and on Super Bowl night I was with the troops you know and they were interviewed um, before the game by ABC and then at the half of the game they watched themselves on TV being you know and that was it, the war was just like total mirrors and it was very hard to tell what was real from the reportage and there was so little real experience there I mean some people actually saw combat but on the other hand even when I saw anything I didn't know what context it was occurring and it didn't seem to have any meaning and, uh, uh, you know what's odd is that the media actually get into your memories 
there's a movie called Battleground about uh, the Battle of the Bulge, and, and I've seen it about three times, and I have to be very careful not to think that I was in a movie. I mean, the, the, media, the, media start, the, the media images start to replace your own real ones. It's odd. We're bombarded with, with that. But it's what happened in World War I, I think. It's the literature of World War I that's really, it seems to me, that's formed us and formed our impressions of war all the way through. And, and, and I mean, Hemingway, it's true Hemingway may not have changed uh, how he felt about, about war, but what he said about high-sounding language changed the way we write, right? I mean, it changed the way... It makes us look in terms of images. It brought on he a whole different style of literature. He well, created a, a different kind of sensibility. It wasn't a disillusionment with war as such. It was a different diction, a different kind of stoic diction to be brought to bear to war. I think, I think Paul Fussell makes that point in The Great War in Modern Memory that, that had an experience here which I think he compares to a, a historical fault line uh, that divided the well-ordered Victorian Edwardian world from, from, from the modern, and that one needed... Yeah, how many a, wars have we seen? One needed a new language to, to describe not just that experience, but the world that it ushered in or that we choose to believe it ushered in. Yeah, there's another really a, a companion book with the Paul Fussell book, The Great War in Modern Memory, which is a wonderful book, and, and in fact, it's an irreplaceable book. But there's another one called by, by a historian by the name of Modris Eckstein's called The Great War and the Coming of the Modern Age, which traces uh, a lot of the artistic movements of the 20th century. I mean, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from, the, from, the, from the First World War, uh, the First World War and the age and the art that surrounded it, all conditioning this particular century. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly say that modernism begins I mean, yeah. with, with World War I. There's, I, I wonder if Michael, want to speak to this point too is that I mean you're talking about differences in language and some literary critics say that modernism and, and perhaps modernism in all art began with the Great War with World War one I've seen the the idea advanced that the Vietnam War because of its peculiarly surrealistic qualities was uh, I think it was Don DeLillo described it as the first postmodern war um, <laughs> And uh, I've noticed that a great deal of the literature that has come out of that war uh, does have a rather very quirky, idiosyncratic quality to it. It seems to make a break with, with, with modernism. It tends to be rather chaotic, uh, random, and odd. Uh, I, I don't know. When I, do, do you see that, Michael? Or when do you think I, that's a myth? Well... It's strange, because when I think of the literature of World War I, I, I think of two books. I, I think of Goodbye to All That. Um, the Robert Gray yeah, memoir. Which has a real Victorian quality to it, I think. Um, and then I think of uh, All Quiet, uh, of course, which has a, a melancholy, wistful quality to it. And both of them seem perfectly apt to me, applying them to my own war. And and I think if I scraped away real hard at the labels that have been put on the literature that came out of my war, I might be able to find analogs for those two works as well. Um, uh, it's funny, when I was listening to Jane Reed, I, I kept hearing Michael Herr 
um, <laughs> that I, um, whose work I greatly admire, I might add. Um, and and I wonder if there was yet another point that we've crossed. If 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 in fact Fussell was right that modern age began 1918, 1919. Did something else happen in 1968, 1969? Was there another leap that we took? Uh, is there a new kind of literature coming out? Maybe a literature that's more disjointed, that, that's not as easily classified, that maybe expresses um, everything from the modern angst to this profound sense of dislocation um, that many writers seem to express. I don't know. That argument is, I mean, that, that, whether the Vietnam War makes it real break, it's like the argument is as to whether there is a break between, I mean, whether there really is a postmodernism and right. it's different from modernism. I mean, because a lot of what you say about the writing that's come out of the Vietnam War and her stuff, uh, Michael Hurd's writing, I mean, it's the zaniness and the irony begins really with World War One writing, and certainly is there in in, lot, in a lot of what was written about World War Two. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's you know it's, it is there, and it seems to me in Joseph Helen. Oh sure, and the basic Kurt, Kurt attitudes Vonnegut. and Vonnegut, right. And, right. and it seems to me that there isn't that break. This is just a continuation. But then I'm a believer in. Yeah, <laughs> continuity. The continuity of modernism. Well, it's the expression. I probably. I mean, undoubtedly, it is the expression of a thing that changes, and not the, and not the thing. I mean, there is this, there is this, un constant, experience, and I guess we have to assume that it goes on being what it is. I think that wars are very different from one another. I I think that there is no equivalent of the experience of the Western Front. Uh, in 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 either uh, World War Two or Vietnam or uh, this recent war. Well, um, uh, uh, the, the Marines who were at Quezon might yeah might argue. I, I I don't think that there was the sustained experience. I agree with you, but I I, I think the experience of, of being under siege, underground, and all of that, all that that entails, that uh -huh. living in the darkness. Uh, and all that comes with that, uh, the helplessness, being overrun by rats, um, with unburied bodies all around yes. you, uh, in the same trench. Uh, do they have that too? Sure. I've just been reading a book by Berton on Vimy, uh, and he describes the trenches there, and it's really incredible. In, in World War II, I never saw anything like it. Uh, approaching it, at least we could move around. I, I don't. I, I mean, I think that that, insofar as the experience goes, though, I mean that the, the siege that Michael Kaysan that Michael speaks of, however, was kind of a microcosm. But uh, for sheer unimaginable horror, uh, you, 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 excuse the expression. I mean, you can't beat the Western Front. I mean, there were fifty thousand. There were the song. The uh, well, the. Yeah, the, the the total casualties at the um, at the Battle of Verdun, uh, or in one in one mini battle within the Battle of Verdun, a, a battle that was called the Battle of uh, Three Trees. Um, the total number of French casualties in something like four months equaled all U.S. casualties in Vietnam in eight years of combat. 
Well, the first morning of the, the first morning of the psalm, the first morning of the psalm cost sixty thousand. Yeah. Now think, figure that. Sixty thousand dead in five hours. But if if you're only in one place on the battlefield, so in fact, whether it's sixty thousand or six hundred thousand, you're actually not going to see and experience that difference yourself. The 60,000 or, or half a million is learned in retrospect. Um, I would go with Michael about, um, I hadn't read her in years, but I think that, that that kind of voice definitely is the voice to write about war now, because I, I think with the well, earlier- How would you characterize that voice? It's almost a collage of different voice. I remember uh, there was a lot of rock and roll in that book, and it was like the, the media started coming in and sort of looking at yourself about writing it. And uh, I would say the earlier books, um, generally there would be one point of view at the end and you would kind of have an aesthetic whole. And I don't really get that with her. I mean, you get his different mullings over it and maybe different points of view about stuff, but it doesn't really come to a settled place. And in that sense, I mean, there's... It's not controlled by a voice. I mean, it's different yeah. text coming oh. in. And it's like there's no one point of wisdom to arrive at, even the, the wisdom of disillusionment, because after all, he was talking about the hotness and the intensity, which is also there. So you're not left in any, you know, kind of balanced place. Um, I think that's true. You're not left with, with the dispatches. You're not left in any kind of balanced place. But there is a voice, and it's, it's consistent. It's ironic. It's ongoing. It's one of the great things about the book that this becomes, this unpredictable, off-centered, eccentric voice becomes your guide when he takes you from beginning to end through all that. In, and it, it becomes like a piece of music. I mean, it's an extraordinary book. I'd is say more, oh, can Sorry, I just, uh, nobody's <laughs> mentioned Parade's End, which I actually think is the no, great book right. of World War One, and maybe more modern than, than All Quiet, because that does come from a position of not knowing. He keeps talking about sort of, uh, you know, the confusion of the battlefield and just from that one little point of view. And um, uh, well, the First World War is so rich. I mean, the uh, Her Private's Way yeah. is, an, is, is a really great book about, about war. I mean, that uh, idea of only having a one point of view from one man, that, that's Stendhal started that. Uh, his account of the Battle of Waterloo uh, uh, is, is you only have one person's little area of the battlefield. Uh, he invented that. Is there something about the Vietnam War that means that we're going to keep chewing over the experience, that books are going to be written about it? I mean, we don't go back to World War II. I guess the way you wrote, you don't go back to it uh, in your writing. Uh, no. Uh, I mean, the poems that I did about it, I did some years ago. Um, Mailer wrote one novel, The Naked and the Dead, and left it and went on from there. But maybe that's not going to happen with Vietnam. I don't know. Well, to, every time I'm, uh, words always fail, at least for me, I think. Whenever I try to understand Vietnam, I uh, open Eliot's Four Quartets, which, of course, I. I think, my scholarship is not that ragged, is a, a, a reaction to uh, the Blitz um, at, uh, in London. Um, and so he, you know, he, there was something about that, for me anyway, there was something about that experience as he 
captured it, or as he ruminated on it across the centuries, that made more sense um, for me than anything I've read about my own war. So I, I constantly look back. I, as a matter of fact, the older the literature, the more helpful it is to me. There's a wonderful line in, in, the, in the quartets. I think it's in the last section, which is Little Gidding, an oft-quoted line, we had the experience but missed the meaning. Um, and, um, you know, as, as Louis kept dreaming, I keep hearing that line and keep wondering when the hell the meaning's going to come. You know that well, passage that Eliot makes so much of from the, what, what is it, the Maharaja, in which they're having this debate before battle? Right. That famous passage. Oh, I wrote it, yeah. Yeah. And it's a fascinating yeah. passage in no. which Arunya, no, is terribly worried because on the other side are his relatives who he's going to have to fight against. And the voice of, uh, who is the god? Siva? Krishna. Krishna says to him, uh, tells him, uh, forget all that, you have to go through it, or something like that. Right. It's a very interesting passage uh, in which they really lift themselves to some level of looking down on the whole thing, which is very Eastern, I imagine, <laughs> or maybe not. Um, speaking to, to, to your point, Harvey, about about Vietnam, the one, one thing I've, I've noticed is, is that um, the literature of, of, of Vietnam, first of all, is extremely uh, rich, or certainly there is a lot of it. In fact, as I was recently sent a catalog by a bookseller who has collected all of the extant Vietnam War literature that there is, and, it, uh, and, and he confines himself to literature, which he defines in this catalog as memoir, poetry, drama, fiction, etc., uh, not, not strictly the journalism of the war. And he comes up with nearly 3,000 titles. Uh, and apparently that's not really uh, even, even the half of it. And beyond that, I, I also see that, that quite a few writers whose careers began with a book about that war, including me, um, tend to kind of keep returning to it in, in a way that writers of previous generations have not. And I, I've ruminated about that. I, I, I try to think of why that is. And I think that at the risk of being one of those theorists that <laughs> uh, Louis Simpson talked about, uh, I do think that something in American history came to an end in Vietnam. And I don't mean an actual event so much as an opinion or an image that we had of ourselves uh, came to an end in Vietnam and I think a lot of tenets of the tenets of the American faith the faith and belief in the supremacy of technology for example the faith uh, in the absolute supremacy of the American idea uh, um, the, um, the trust, if you will, in, uh, in one's uh, military and political leaders, all of that got turned on its head in, uh, in Vietnam. And I think that ever since then, we have been trying to, in other words, I'll put it this way, is that, that, that the Vietnam War can't just be looked at as a war. It's got to be looked at as a cultural event in American life. If, if maybe the central myth that died there was the myth of manifest destiny. Um, that uh, we have been trying to interpret that event ever since then and, and, and tend to have not been very successful in its interpretation because we keep 
trying to somehow revise reality to fit the myths that existed before Vietnam. For example, uh, to use, it may seem like a cheap example, but the, uh, the revenge fantasies of Sylvester Stallone and those sorts of movies, which more or less say we lost the war because of a bunch of pointy-headed liberal bureaucrats and newspaper men, uh, and if we had just turned loose enough of these modern-day natty bumpos with, um, with uh, automatic rifles, uh, we, would have, we would have won the war. And uh, I, even, I even think there's probably an argument to be made. I think Norman Mailer makes it in a recent issue of Vanity Fair that we may have plunged uh, into this war in the Persian Gulf as some kind of uh, national psychotherapy uh, to attempt to get over this uh, so-called uh, Vietnam Syndrome. I don't know if that's a bit woozy to think that, but uh, um, it, it, that's why I, I think there is, a, there is a, a lot of literature about it and why it, it, it's rather repetitive and different than the literature of, of World War II and even of World War I. Of course, it's a, it's, it was a war we lost. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's probably going to ex exist in the imagination longer, the way the Civil War existed in the imagination of the Confederacy much more than it did in the victorious North. I want to know about dog soldiers, which is partly about the war and partly about the drug culture. What, what did that come out of? Were you there in Vietnam? Yeah, I worked in, in uh, Vietnam in 1971. Uh, I had already, it was not my first, my, it's not my first, uh, no, Dog Soldiers is not my first novel. I had published a novel in 67. I was living in Europe uh, freelancing, uh, doing a little of this and a little of that, and it occurred to me that uh, the, an experience was going forward that if I, wanted to maintain what I saw then, however wrong-headedly or as my witness, that I should, I, that I should go there. So I, I, I went from London to, to Vietnam in 1971. I went as the correspondent of an English imitation of the village voice called Ink, I-N-K which folded while I was there, <laughs> leaving me altogether without a context. Uh, originally accredited only to the, to, the, to the South Vietnamese, but by laying on of hands, I uh, uh, was accredited to various other uh, uh, publications. And I, I, so I was part of what was an extremely complicated and, and, and kind of comical marginal, marginal journalistic scene that, that thrived around uh, uh, Saigon in the in in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, it was literally true that they were correspondents of Iowa high school papers <laughs> trotting around town. Uh, it was extremely easy to get out. And in in 1971, I mean, it always occurred. I mean, the, my, my experience, the, my, my fir the first day that I ever came into any contact with what I had understood from the press to be the war in Vietnam with capital letters always reminded me of a sequence in The Ghost Goes West, the, the old René Clair movie where somebody's ask, try, asking directions to the battle and uh, a, a, a young woman who's threshing says, well, if you, if you just 
turn right at the next crossroads and you'll see men fighting and that'll be it. And I mean this in uh, area, uh, not, not, I mean this, this about 35 kilometers outside of Saigon, it was possible to blunder, and I do mean blunder, into what might be described as the line. I remember being on the back of somebody's motorbike and finding myself. One, one minute I'm standing next to a kid selling soda under a Michelin sign, and the next thing I've, I seem to have happened on the, on the war itself. I mean, uh, so it always held for me this particular uh, uh, odd quality, but that, because, that was because my experience was very different, very different indeed from uh, people who's, who's, whose business was there to be fighting it. Uh, but that was, I mean, dog soldiers came out of that, out of that experience. And it also seemed to me uh, to be a juncture in, in things American. Uh, I always thought that the fact that, the, that the, the people who fought the war was so young and that the music, the music that existed existed and that the, and that the drugs were there. I mean, the, the, the soldiers in Vietnam were about seven years younger on the average. I think it's six years and three quarters younger than the soldiers in, in, in the Second World War. And uh, the American sensibility was obviously on the point of changing, and drugs did influence. I mean, it's banal to say that uh, 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 the influence of drugs caused this change, but it's not without a certain degree of truth. I always remember uh, some, one of the many things people walked around saying, and one of the things that stayed with me was uh, somebody saying, you know, the thing about this war is there's more information available and there is shit loose to know about. And this always seemed to carry to me a, a certain narcotic savor. I mean, there was a counter-logical counter process of figuring things out that I think was not altogether unconnected with, uh, with, with, with drugs. I mean, I think this is in the same way that the sensibility of the West began to change through music and art in the, around the First World War. Something else, perhaps on, on the level of popular culture, was changing uh, to go with the disillusionment of the period of the Vietnam War. I think uh, we're, we're supposed to be talking about literature and war, I guess. And one thing I don't know if we've said, it's true for me, is that the war made it very difficult for me to believe in literature. Um, the images of war, I think we're also called images of war tonight, huh? the images, the actual images of war on a, on a I guess I was 19, uh, are so strong that it's like, uh, it was like, that was like a drug. I mean, after seeing, I mean, can you imagine a bigger uh, the spectacle than Normandy coastline on June the 6th? with the entire fleet there bombarding it and the, sh the planes going in and men going ashore. And that, at 19, you see that kind of thing. And then later on, a few days later, you know, coming across the things you saw, um, it took, it, it, it made it very hard to believe in writing, in words. Um, actually, they seem to be contradictory to me. I guess I've said that before, but it's, it's of all the things that I think the war did, well, that seems to me the most devastating thing. What, what did you believe in? What did I believe in? Yeah. Um, nothing much, really. Um, I, I was a survivor. I had this kind of survival mentality, and uh, I didn't believe in anything very much. As a matter of fact, I think I had some sort of religious 
a conversion which the, which the doctors knocked out of me in a hurry. They told me that was a lot of baloney. Uh, <laughs> and and, and I, I agreed with them uh, because I knew it would be better for me to. Um, and uh, uh, they didn't put up with that nonsense very long. Uh, but um, it took me years to get back to believing in normalcy, in, in love between people and, and so on. I thought there was a lot of crap. I mean, after all, you could be split open by a shell in, in five seconds. What was a human being? You know, that kind of attitude. Yeah. Well, I, I think that certainly speaks to the universality of the experience. I mean, you, you could be a tape recording of, of myself. I mean, that's exactly the way I have felt. Because I, I spoke recently at a school up in uh, up in New England, and uh, I, was, I was talking to a class, and they asked me about these reactions. And the one thing I do find remarkable is that that I, I find myself now at the age of 49 um, feeling younger and a bit more positive and optimistic about life than I did when I was 26. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I agree, absolutely. Of course, it may be that. Uh, mentioned Stephen Crane and the Red Badge of Courage that, I mean, one doesn't have to be in the experience of war to write about it and to write greatly about it. I mean, the most famous poem to come out of World War II was Randall Jarrell's uh, The Death of Ball Turret Gunner, that short poem. It may not be the best, but it's certainly the best, the best known. And uh, I remembered that uh, Jarrell had never been in Europe, and he had been in the second Air Force, the training Air Force. And when I went to, that poem ends with the line, uh, what, the, when they came back, they washed him out of the turret with a hose. And I remember when I went to gunnery school in Yuma, Arizona, uh, there were the veteran, some of the flyers from the 8th Air Force were just coming back. They were our instructors. And I remember this instructor standing in front of this, a mock-up of the B-17, and, and talking about the different positions. And when he came to the ball turret, he said, you know, sometimes when they come, they wash him out of the turret with a hose. And I'm sure that's where Jarrell heard it. I mean, it was something that was said. It was nothing he experienced, but he made a poem, a poem out of it. But the experience of, of combat, of aerial combat, was very different from anything else that had occurred before. I think there's no, that, partic that seemed particularly different to me. And being in a, being in a, being in a, a bomber over Europe, there was no, when you wanted to write about it, there was nothing to go back to. I mean, there were no models for it. And in a way, it's an experience, I think, that, it, that passes with that war. I mean, it, because what's happening now is different. The technology has changed. There was a technological moment, uh, and it's gone. Uh, I wonder what will come out of this war, if anything. One thing I, 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 I noted, I was thinking about that myself, especially when uh, I was uh, listening to, um, to uh, James speak about that war, is that the interesting thing is, is that that Vietnam was a war that was ludicrously, almost ridiculously covered by the media. And I know one of the problems I had 
when I attempted to write about it, I think it's one of the reasons that Rumor of War took eight years to write was, is I, I, I couldn't figure out what I could say about it that hadn't been said 17 times already, uh, either uh, by a TV correspondent or a, or a reporter. Uh, what I noticed, I wonder if, if with the heavy press censorship in this war, I get a sense that the, the reality of it, that is to say the, the emotional truth of it, the texture, what these people, these soldiers, were thinking, feeling, and experiencing there, uh, might not now have to come out in, in literature. And even, uh, you were speaking, I mean, Bob spoke about the Red Badge of Courage, you spoke about, uh, about Randall Jarrell, is, uh, that um, uh, there's, a, there's something to be said, you know, for, we, we have to say it, uh, for the imagination, uh, yeah. as, as a guide to the truth, rather than, rather than uh, empirical experience. But every time you think about that, you think it's going to be a really short book. <laughs> right. That's funny. Uh, in, in a way, uh, Crane almost invented the cult of authenticity by, by having always to answer the question of how, how could you write about it not being there, and he did really probably destroyed his health by running off forever to wars yeah. for Hearst and Pulitzer mm -hmm. in order to be there, finally to be there again and again and again. And he, and he, never, and he never wrote uh, Cuba, any, Greece. Anything, as, anything as real as, as, as that. It seems to me the real story of this war is going to is the covering of the war, which is a much more interesting story. I mean, the war was four days; few people were killed. There was there was some boredom in the desert, but the the responses were so programmed into the soldiers, and there was so little chance for reality to intrude on that. I mean, everybody would give you the same quote, you know. Uh, we want to go home, but we're here to do a job, and so let's get it over with, and then we can go back home. And all the pool reports were the same. They would. There was this incredible formality to the pool reports. You know, but somebody would go talk to someone. They mentioned their unit, their rank. That was the first thing I was told on a pool. You got to say their name, their hometown, their age, all this kind of stuff. Then you'd say what they did at home, what they did here, and then you'd have the thing about wanting to get it over with and to go home. And it was just very hard to break through that. And the only time I really got through it was in the Mac flight line where people were about to go home. Sometimes they tell you the truth. They got pregnant to get out of the theater or something. But they would all say the same stuff about the Kuwait atrocities. Obviously, they've been fed that. Um, I heard very little remorse about the number of Iraqis that were getting killed. I mean, that may come out later as a retrospective realization, but except for people that were uh, in the planes, you know, hardly anybody saw people get killed. I never talked to a soldier who saw many dead bodies. Um, so there wasn't really much experience of war. Um, things were seen through sights. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's going to be any great war novels. There may be great novels, you know, about the. Re I even doubt that. There was a little bit of, you know, Evelyn Waugh to it, because like you're living in these luxury hotels and having these great meals, and the Italians were having uh, handmade suits done for them by you know tailors and, you know. Well, I've covered several wars, and they always do that. The, the Italians always yeah. do that. <laughs> the Americans try to look like they're coming off the field. But the Italians, yeah. you know, just. Just this, is a, this is a real. This level of absurdity is a really important thing about war, and, and not uh, in probably throughout history, but certainly in the 20th century, because for the most part, up until the, up until maybe the middle of the 19th century, the people who fought wars didn't have much of a sense of absurdity. I mean, their lives were very hard and difficult, to say the least. And they, uh, I mean, they went off from from uh, digging up rocks to fight the wars.